Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. You guys can be seated. Welcome, church family, those in the room, uh, those online. If, if it's your first time or your first time in a while, welcome. Uh, so glad to see you guys. I got to tell you, last Sunday, uh, I know not all of us in the room were there, but man, Nikki and I at the end of the night, we were just like bone tired from a long day, but just so uh, excited and so much celebrating what God had done uh, that morning with, with full services filled with energy and then uh, more than 180 coming back for our family barbecue on Sunday night. I told Nikki, I said, you know what my favorite part of the whole day was? That all of that happened and I did almost nothing. <laughs> like... <laughs> I didn't host, I didn't preach, I didn't play guitar, I didn't, you know, I didn't recruit volunteers, like I didn't serve food, I didn't pass out t-shirts, like you all did that. Like our church was on the move on Sunday, led by Marcy and Justin and Kelly and other staff and, and, and the key volunteers that were putting their hands to the work. So I'm just so thrilled. When we sing that song, Build Your Church, I'm like, man, God is building his church here and around the world. We live in a time where there's a lot of bad news and it can feel like the darkness is winning. And I think about Psalm 2, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. Darkness is not winning. The darkness is fighting from a posture of losing. That's why there's such this last gas to try to introduce evil to the world and the Lord is not panicking. Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What a privilege it is to be part of that church. Hey, for those of you that are, are uh, kind of still getting connected with this church, maybe you just started coming uh, in the last several months or earlier this year, or maybe even just in the last few weeks, we've got an experience that I want to invite you to. You're going to hear more about it, but if you would just kind of circle your calendars for August the 15th and the 22nd, those are both Sundays, we're doing something we're calling the Discover Experience. This is going to be an opportunity for you uh, to meet uh, with myself and Nikki and some other staff and, and to hear about kind of who we are as a church and some of the things God is doing and, and really some of the things we believe and, uh, and, uh, about Jesus and about the gospel um, and also an opportunity in, in that second part of the week to figure out what your next step might be, maybe to get involved on a serve team or to join a group. Uh, there's no commitment to any of that to come, uh, but we do want to give you opportunities. So August the 15th and 22nd, Discover Experience. I want to personally invite you, uh, if you're still getting connected here at the church, to come and be part of that. We'll serve you lunch after uh, our second service that day. And again, you'll get more details down the road. All right, I have a, a whole lot of ground to cover. I'm going to go over our time today. I'm just going to tell you that right off the bat. Uh, I'm going to try not to go too far over our time, but uh, we are in the second to last of our Summer of Impact series. And today, uh, we are going to look at women of impact. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at three of these women uh, who really were indispensable to the story of Jesus and to what he was doing in his life and ministry. Uh, now, I'm cheating a little bit because these women are not uh, people that are kind of off the radar. You know, a lot of the folks we've talked about over this summer have been people that you didn't know a lot about or stories you didn't uh, hear before. Well, today, these are three people that you're going to probably know their stories. Many of you would. But by virtue of the fact that they were women in a day and age when that was not an esteemed place to be, we're going to see that God loves to use those who are least likely to be used in their cultural context. Now, I'm going to make an assumption this morning, and let me kind of tease this out. 
I believe that nothing God does is random or haphazard. And I believe that's especially true as it surrounds the coming of Messiah Jesus, right? Like the events around, I mean, you do realize that his being born into the Roman Empire so that he would be crucified. The fact that he was born in Bethlehem was prophesied about. God wasn't just like, oh, it's just kind of, this just happened. And one of the things that was not random was the people that God chose to be his chosen witnesses to the life, death, resurrection, and ministry of Jesus. Well, here's what we know about the views of women at the time of Christ. And just bear with me because uh, this is not a real positive thing. But uh, two primary cultures within the Roman Empire, besides the Romans themselves, were, were the Greek culture, the prized wisdom and knowledge. Think Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, these guys. And then you had the Jewish culture, which, which esteemed the law, right, and the covenant and circumcision. So these are the primary cultures at the time that Jesus arrives. And let me just kind of hit on a few of the ways that each of these cultures viewed women. First, Socrates. Socrates believed that being a woman was a divine punishment. Um, he believed that women were halfway between a man and an, and an animal, right? Okay, that was Socrates, this great, wise individual. Uh, one of his students, uh, Xenophon, I don't know if I'm saying that name right, this is what he said about women. They should see as little as possible, hear as little as possible, and ask as little as possible. And finally, the Stoics where we get the term stoic, where a person who's kind of hard and unemotional, the stoics saw women little more than stumbling blocks for men. They were to be avoided. You weren't supposed to engage with them. They were a distraction to the real work of philosophy and academics. And so that was their view. Well, the Jews weren't a whole lot better at that time. In fact, rabbinical interpretation um, believed that women were property. And and here was their basis, right? Because we can always find reasons to have beliefs based on the Bible, but their view of one of the covenants, or rather one of the commandments, thou shall not covet. If you're familiar with the commandment, it says don't covet your neighbor's wife or their animals or their property or their house or all these other things. And the rabbis went, well, a a, a, a house is a property, a field is a property, an animal is a property. So, So a woman, a wife, must be the property of the man. That's why she's not to be coveted. So that was how they viewed it. And that that played itself out in a lot of different ways. There was a daily prayer that Jewish men were encouraged to pray that said, Blessed are you, Lord, our God, ruler of the universe, who has not created me a woman. This is is what Jewish men would would pray. And finally, and most important to what we're going to look at today, in most cases in the courtrooms, in the court of law in, 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 uh, in Judaism, at that time at least, the testimony of a woman or the witness of a woman was considered ineligible, right? So, so this is, you, you see that this was not a great time in history to be a woman. And then Jesus comes along, and I want to make this assertion, and I think I'm going to prove it this morning, that no spiritual leader or teacher did more to elevate and leverage the positive power of women than Jesus. I mean, it was remarkable, especially in the context into which Jesus came. So what we're going to do this morning, we're going to look at three uh, women of impact that Jesus chose to be his witnesses, right? Think about this, that they weren't considered credible. Jesus said, no, 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 I consider them credible witnesses. And here's three that we're going to look at. First is Mary, the mother of Jesus, Luke chapter 1. Verses 26 through 38. We're going to do a lot of scripture today, so feel free to open your Bible or follow on the, on the uh, screen here. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth 
to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. By the way, that was John the Baptist, that baby that was conceived there. For nothing will be impossible with God. And then look at Mary's response. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let me tell you some things that we know for sure about Mary. One, we know that she was young. Uh, That term virgin kind of has a double meaning here. We know that she says, I've never been with a man. That's, that's the way we think about the word virgin. But it also, in very plain terms, meant a young woman. Okay, So we know that Mary was a young woman, that she was from Nazareth. This was a town at the time of a few hundred people, probably two to four hundred people. Okay, Now think about this from God's vantage point. Sending the Messiah into the world. He's got to save the world. Like He needs to make a big splash. Let's go to Nazareth. You're thinking, nope. That's not the place to raise somebody who's going to be a world changer. This woman, Mary, is living in Nazareth. And finally, she's betrothed or engaged to a man named Joseph. But what I want to highlight here is the greeting that Mary receives from this angel. You probably caught caught it there in verse 28. He says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. The NIV translates that word highly favored. It's this idea of of massive esteem. It actually communicates the idea of being accepted or qualified. He says, you highly qualified individual. Last week, we were having Jonah, my five-year-old, test uh, for school. He's going into kindergarten. And, uh, you know, we don't make a big deal of that stuff. It's like, you know, don't put pressure. Don't we stress these kids out so bad, don't we? Like, with all this stuff. And so we're like, you know, it's just they're going to ask some questions. They're going to draw some pictures, that kind of thing. Well, Jonah starts getting nervous. And he goes, I hope I qualify. (laughs) Nikki said, you're five years old and you use the word qualify. I think you'll be fine, you know. Um, And, of course, he was. But isn't that what we all desire at the end of the day. I hope, I'm, I hope I'm qualified. I hope I'm accepted. I hope I'm enough. The, the angel comes to bear this incredible good news. This is in some ways the first iteration of the gospel. You are accepted. See, we've kind of in some ways misunderstood, I think, the gospel. Did you know that the scripture never says that it is our job to accept Jesus? To receive him, yes, But the acceptance is his part. What I mean is that the good news of the gospel is not about us accepting Jesus, but understanding and embracing his acceptance of us. When Jesus was stretched out on a Roman cross, bleeding to death and suffocating, he gasped with his lungs, said, It is finished. The work is done. And now to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become the children of God. He gives the right to be accepted by him and by his sacrifice. 
Women and girls, I want you to know that this includes you. Not only that you've been qualified for salvation, but you have been qualified by God to serve. To serve. That, that was Mary's response in her posture. Verse 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. The word there in the Greek, which is what most of the New Testament is written in, the word is doule, and it means handmaiden. I think the King James Version might translate that, I am a handmaiden of the Lord. Or it could mean just a female slave. It's only used three times in the New Testament, that word. And two of them are here by Mary. She says, this is what I am. I'm just a, a servant of the Lord. I'm just a lowly, humble servant of the Lord. Now, it leads me to this question. Isn't that a diminishing of Mary, right? Doesn't it seem like Mary is, is, is almost demeaning herself by saying, I'm just a, I'm just a female servant. I'm just a female slave of, of the Lord. And I would answer that by saying, only if you're looking at it through human eyes. Because in the economy of God's kingdom, the greatest among you are those who are servants. This is how Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 20. Disciples have been squabbling about greatness, and Jesus called to them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so, it must not be so among you. Instead, whoever would be great among you must be your what? Your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, guys, I, I want you to know how important service and servanthood is in my kingdom. I myself, Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, he says, I came not to be a great one among you, but I came to serve. I came to wash your feet. I came to die on a Roman cross to save you. One of Jesus' followers, Peter, said it this way in verse 5 of chapter 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Think back at Luke 1. This is exactly the picture that we see. Mary says, I am the servant of the Lord. An angel says, yes, and you are highly favored. That's how it works. Those who would puff themselves up, those who would come as, as rulers and, and flex their authority over others, have no place in God's kingdom. But those who humble themselves, like this woman, those who are willing to serve, are highly favored. Here's a second woman of impact I want to introduce you to. We know her as the Samaritan woman or, or the woman at the well. We actually don't even get her name. Do you guys want to give her a name? You can give her your own name in your head. But, but we don't know her name. That's just how we know her. Um, and I don't have time to read the whole story. So let me just quickly drop into the story. Jesus is passing through a town called Samaria, which Jewish people of that day hated Samaritans. They were the wrong religion. They were the wrong ethnicity. They were the wrong language. They were the wrong everything to Jewish people. But Jesus passes through Samaria. And again, remember, nothing God does is haphazard or coincidental. Jesus sits himself down at a well in the middle of the town. He encounters this woman. He asks her for a drink, which was unusual because the text even tells us that that would not normally happen. A Jewish person would not share a cup with a Samaritan. And a man is not likely to be talking to a woman. So Jesus is defying all of these customs. But as he encounters this woman, he asks her for a drink, and it leads to a conversation about living water. Jesus rightly discerns that this woman has had some brokenness in her life. And the way this brokenness has played itself out is that this woman has been married and divorced, remarried, redivorced, remarried, redivorced, remarried, redivorced, remarried, redivorced five times, and now she's just shacking up with a guy so she's not on the street. 
She's broken. And Jesus says, if you will understand who I am, the Messiah, if you, if you will receive me, you're going to have wells of living water flowing in and through you. He gives her this great hope and this great promise. Now, at best, culturally, this situation would seem to be an inconvenience to Jesus, right? Taking all this time with a woman. At worst, it could be downright scandalous. In fact, when his disciples returned, they said, it said that they said among themselves, why is he talking with a woman? <laughs> like they were confused by this. But Jesus saw it differently. Jesus saw this as an opportunity to bring one more outcast to his banquet table because he loves to do that. Here's the result of that. You probably, many of you knew that part of the story of the woman of Samaria or the woman at the well. Here's the conclusion of that story. John chapter four, this is what he tells us. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to Jesus. Hang on one second, real quick. Remember, in this culture, the testimony of a woman was not given much esteem. But Jesus chooses this woman to go into the town to bear witness to him. Here's what happens. So many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two more days. And many more believed because of his word, Jesus' word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer just because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. But it was this woman, five times divorced with bad theology from a despised people group who was God's chosen instrument to bring revival to the town of Samaria. By the way, this revival was not just like a a, a off the beaten path part of God's redemptive plan. Remember Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus' last conversation with the disciples? He gives them their, their, their marching orders. Remember what he says? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and where? Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the first domino in that plan was a woman. Scandalized, broken, marginalized. And Jesus said, I'm choosing you. You are going to bear witness to me in Samaria, in this one of four critical places that the gospel would eventually go. Third and final woman of impact, witness to Jesus, is a woman named Mary Magdalene or Mary of Magdala. We first encounter this Mary in Luke's gospel. Um, Luke is the only non-Jewish writer in the New Testament canon, at least that we know of. And because Luke is kind of an outsider turned insider, he puts a heavy and probably the heaviest emphasis on those who are marginalized. So he's going to talk a lot about the Samaritans, Luke is. He's going to talk a lot about uh, disabled people. He's going to talk a lot about women and outcasts and tax collectors and all of these things. Why? Because Luke understands what it's like to be an outsider and to hear Jesus' gentle invitation to become an insider, to come in to the gospel. And Mary Magdalene is one that's certainly going to fit this category. Here's where we are introduced to Mary in Luke chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. Soon afterward, he, Jesus, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Okay, So she's got a few strikes against her, but here she is, one of the closest followers of Jesus. When we see that seven demons or evil spirits were cast out of her, that could be a literal seven. But more than likely, what it's referring to is this this idea of complete domination. 
So, so in Jewish mindset, seven is the number for wholeness or completeness. A lot of this goes back to Genesis chapter one, six days God created, seventh day he rested, and that's one whole week. And so seven for, for Jewish people was, was the number of completion. Luke could be telling us, and I think probably is telling us, she was utterly dominated by these spirits, by these voices in her head, by, by these, these, these enemies of her soul that she couldn't shake until she met Jesus. In fact, it's possible that Mary Magdalene is the sinful woman in Luke chapter 7, whose name we don't learn. It's interesting that, that in Luke chapter 7, we learn about this woman who had lived uh, you know, a, a, a scandalous life, and, and, and she comes into the party, remember this, and she lets her hair down, and she's weeping and anointing Jesus' feet with oil, and the Pharisees are like, what is happening here? This isn't, this isn't kosher, you're not allowed to do this. And Jesus esteems and affirms the woman in her act of worship. It's interesting that the very next verses introduce Mary Magdalene by name. So, so there's some commentators that believe this is, this is who that was. But whether or not she was a woman of the street, which is what the Luke 7 woman was, or whether she was just a woman who had been dominated by evil spirits, she was a woman with a sketchy past. One of the things that Bible commentators have noted is that Mary is always named first among the women who followed Jesus. In fact, in the same way that Peter is always named first among the disciples, it tells us something about Mary's role among the women. Peter was kind of the first and the spokesperson of the, of the men disciples, and Mary's kind of the first and the spokesperson for the women disciples, but it goes beyond that. Mary was not just a leader in her group of women. She was actually a significant leader in the narrative of Jesus and his Gospels. Not, not just esteemed among women, but, but standing out even among the men. Did you know that Mary was one of the few who stayed with Jesus all the way through the crucifixion? And most of those who stayed, you guessed it, were women. Only John of the 12 stayed with him through that. The women stayed. And did you know that Mary, this Mary, Magdalene, was the first person to see the resurrected Jesus on Easter Sunday morning? Look again at John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. But Mary Magdalene stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stopped, uh, stooped rather, to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, and one was at the head and the other at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And then Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Let me once again say, this is a day and an age and a culture in which the testimony of a woman was discredited. And Jesus said, the most important event in the history of the world, my first witness is going to be a woman named Mary. In fact, did you know when she went to tell the disciples they didn't believe her? <laughs> surprise, surprise, right? But yet she became the first witness to the resurrected Jesus. The single most important people of, uh, group of people who ever lived would no doubt have to be the several hundred men and women who saw the resurrected Jesus before he returned to the Father. And once again, the first domino in that group, the first person to see that was a woman named Mary. 
Nothing God does is random. Nothing God does is haphazard. I want to do this. I want to give you a couple of application points, and then I want to close by taking you beyond the Gospels just just briefly. I want to first make a specific application of this message to women and girls. Um, I've, I've said it, but I've not said it so clearly as this. As we look at these women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the Samaritan woman, and Mary Magdalene, it reveals to us that the first person to receive news that Messiah was coming to earth was a woman. The first miracle of Jesus came in response to the request of a woman. The first Christian revival in history was initiated by a woman. And the first witness to the resurrection of Jesus was a woman. This tells me that Jesus chose to elevate and empower women to proclaim and to witness for him to the world. If you're here this morning as a girl or a woman, God has chosen you to be a full-fledged participant in the building of his church and the expanding of his kingdom on the earth in whatever way he has gifted you. Whatever way the Holy Spirit has gifted you, whether that way is by proclaiming or by serving or by leading or by teaching or by whatever else God may have given you, we are better as a church when you use your gifts to help build the church and expand the kingdom. There's another aspect of this that applies to all of us, women, girls, men, and boys, and it is this. Let me first tell you a story to to, to get us there. As I was preparing for this message on, I think it was Wednesday or maybe Thursday, I was at the Starbucks in Ocoee, which I'm not often at. How many of you, that's your Starbucks? Everybody's got their own, right? Okay. Um, Oh, that's yours, Zach? Well, hopefully we'll see each other there. So I'm there because I had a meeting just around the corner. I'm trying to be efficient. You know, I'm going to go there because I'm meeting just around the corner. And I'm sitting there and, and a woman walks up. I'm sitting outside. She walks up and there's a few things. Uh, she's got a dog. Fine. Nothing against dogs. Dogs barking. Didn't love it. Trying to dial in. Um, she was also just a unique woman, j- just visually unique. She uh, had very short blue hair. Uh, she was probably in her 50s and had just a ton of leg tattoos, um, had this dog, and her shirt said, I'm a cat mom. And in my mind, and I'm just being really honest to confess this, I thought, I have nothing in common with this person. Like, this is, this is like the opposite of me. Like, none of these things, you know. And, uh, but at one point, I needed to adjust because the Starbucks shade things, the sun, if you're there too long, and you start getting hot on your back, and I had to move, and I needed to move where her dog was. And so I said, ma'am, do you mind if I, and she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, She's like, I'm sorry if he's bothering you. I said, he's not bothering me. I don't want to bother the dog. And, and she said, okay, you're, you're fine. We ended up talking for an hour and 15 minutes. <laughs> no exaggeration. And this woman who at first glance, I thought, man, I have nothing in common with this woman. In much the same way that Jesus may have thought, I have nothing in common with this Samaritan woman at the well who's been five times divorced and is of a different language and people group and religion. And yet, we talked about her losing her mom, an experience that I've gone through. And she had tears in her eyes as she talked about it, talked about raising her children and and how proud she is of them to this day, and that she was determined to be the mom that she didn't have in her own mom. And, And it was a beautiful, beautiful conversation. As we talked, I noticed the two men sitting at a table adjacent to us who had dirty clothes on and were smoking cigarettes, speaking in another language to each other. I noticed a woman in a camo jacket on a cane limping into the Starbucks. I noticed a man with huge Coke bottle glasses holding his cell phone this far from his face, and I was even able to see the letters, largest print I've ever seen on an iPhone. 
And I had this thought, and it was a better thought. I thought, I think Jesus would love to hang out with these people. In the same way that Jesus loved to hang out with Matthew and Zacchaeus, the hated tax collectors, in the same way that he loved receiving the worship of that scandalous woman at a dinner party, in the same way that he loved walking with a fisherman named Peter who was always speaking too soon, losing faith, chickening out, and jockeying for position. Jesus loves the oddballs and the outcasts. Do you know the one thing that these people had in common? It wasn't their gender, wasn't their ethnicity, wasn't any of these things. What these people had in common was they all said yes to Jesus' simple invitation, invitation to come. Earlier this week, I saw a story that Shiloh had posted um, with a quote, and I, I told her I was going to use it because it was spot on. The quote comes from a woman named Rachel Held Evans. This is what it says. This is what God's kingdom is like. A bunch of outcasts and oddballs gathered at a table, not because they are rich or worthy or good, but because they are hungry, because they said yes. You want to see how the Apostle Paul said the same words or the same idea? He said it like this, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Brothers, consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God, who does nothing haphazard, nothing by accident, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. No boasting because you're a man or because you're a woman. No boasting because the language you speak or the color of your skin. No boasting because of your righteousness or how long you've attended church or how faithful you are to serve. As one person said, and probably many more after him, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. I want to close by asking the question, what happened to those oddballs and outcasts that Jesus left behind after he returned to heaven? Because you know the story didn't end there. Acts chapter 1 tells us that about 120, probably about the number in this room, they gathered in the upper room and they were praying. And it says that the disciples were there and also the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus. And when it says the women were there, that leads me to believe that Mary Magdalene's probably also in the room. And perhaps, not likely, but perhaps, maybe the Samaritan woman's up there as well. But whoever this group is, we know it's men and women. And then Acts chapter 2 tells us that the Holy Spirit shows up and lands on them like tongues of fire. And they begin to proclaim in all kinds of languages they had never studied the good news of Jesus. I had always heard that story. And I always, in my mind, went, the disciples, the men, the eleven. They went and proclaimed. And then I went, wait, but the women were there. And then I came across this, Acts chapter 2, verses 16 to 18. This is Paul, or rather Peter, explaining to the people what's happening. And notice, if you never have before, notice what he says. In the last days it will be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy or they will proclaim is another rendering of that word. 
I told you earlier in the message that that word for servant that Mary used twice, that word doule, it only appears three times. Do you want to know where the third appears? It's right here. It's right here. And, and that brings us full circle. What the angel foreshadowed to a young girl in Nazareth, what Jesus demonstrated in his total acceptance and advocacy of women is now fulfilled in the arrival of the Holy Spirit who makes no distinction. He empowers men and women, boys and girls, to serve in his kingdom. My vision for our church is this. May we be a church where both women and men, boys and girls, the able-bodied and people with disabilities, people of African and Latin and European and Asian and indigenous descent, the dynamically gifted and the socially awkward come together as one people loving and serving and worshiping and proclaiming the good news of Jesus. Maybe when we do that, people would say, that looks like a diverse community of good friends who come together to do good works and to share the good news of Jesus. I want to close with a scripture that I didn't have them put on the screen because I want to stay with you in this moment. I want you to hear this. I want to read this over you. One of those, John, who had a first front row seat to see how Jesus elevated and raised up those who are marginalized. He later in life got a vision from heaven. In, in John chapter, or rather, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, he says this, After I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And they were standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And John doesn't say this, but I can guarantee you that none of them were looking and going, why is he here? Why is she here? You know why? Because the focus was on Jesus. Church, let's come together to remind people in some cases or introduce people to the fact that there is a God who loves them unconditionally, who created them to be exactly what they are and who wants to empower them with his spirit to live an abundant life and to advance the kingdom on earth. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I thank you that you are a God who qualifies the unqualified. You qualify even the disqualified. You qualify those who have nothing to boast of. God, I know the person that I am. I remember the, the, the kid that I was at 15 years old, just, just wrecked in sin and just thoughts out of control and sarcasm and, and hopelessness and purposelessness. And I remember when you showed up in the pages of scripture and you said, I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. God, thank you that you invited me to your banquet table. And I pray for every single one of us, God, that we would just uh, sense more than ever before, not only that our salvation is by grace alone, but that you've qualified us by grace alone to serve and to lead and to, to use the gifts that you've given us here in this world, in this community, and beyond. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.